You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about theology, it's literally the knowledge of God. What do we know about God and how do we know about God what we know about God? Turn with me if you have your Bibles just for an opening verse in Hebrews 11. And then just to look at the world around us, it might get our attention. I read this week a few news items that really struck me of the importance of having a better understanding of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says this, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Simple, basic truth. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is really the foundation of of theology, of belief in God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, as I look at the world around us, I feel that there is a great dearth of information about God. When I look at the problems in the world, I think people are missing the character, the nature of who God is in deference to let's just talk about how we feel about God. And of course, with that, like in any relationship, your trust in that person is going to be directly related to your knowledge of that person. I can't trust somebody I don't know. It's very difficult. And the more I get to know God, which is what theology is, the more I will find my faith will grow in him. You know, our world is in in trouble, but of course this was, when we get to know God better, a part of understanding that he had his hand and has his hand on history, and that this was predicted from the foundation of the world. In the latter days, that people would be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, boastful, proud, disobedient to parents. This context of the world we live in should not surprise us. I read this last week, an Indiana woman who was arrested and charges she gave her 11-year-old daughter alcohol and marijuana as a birthday gift. Great job, mother. Wonderful. You know, where did you get that context from which to bless your children on their birthday? I, I look at some of the experiments that are going on in the human genome, and particularly in Britain at Newcastle. Scientists have actually reported they've created human embryos with the DNA from three parents instead of two, father and two mothers. Supposedly, the idea was to replace the faulty mitochondria in the little energy-creating little entity in the cell and prevent diseases. And, of course, they're actually just performing some human cloning by this but with three parents. I can't help but wonder this brave new world that we live in, what horrors might be in store uh, left to themselves to decide what is life, what is not life. It's a scary prospect. And I think every believer has to think in terms of the issue of embryonic stem cell research as opposed to adult stem cell research. Most people hear stem cell research and put it all into the same thing. Uh, To me, I think as Christians, there's a big difference between learning some things from adult stem cells that we can apply and actually have been successful in healing and treating many different types of diseases and creating life in order to destroy it, to mess with it in that embryonic stage. I'm very concerned about people not having a knowledge of God, a theology that directs their understanding of life. In fact, it's even more bizarre. In England, there is such a confusion. And of course, post-Christian Europe, the Archbishop of Canterbury said, the milder aspects of the legal system in force across the Islamic world could apply to UK's 1.6 million Muslim population. What he's saying essentially is, we will suspend the laws of the country in deference to Sharia, the Islamic law, if they want to apply that in their communities. And I'm thinking how global we're thinking now But yet, what will that mean to nations and people's philosophy of life? 
We have to really start looking at these things. In addition, so many other news items this week. Of course, you might be concerned about the economy situation. And of course, we're pumping money into a, to stimulate the economy and tax cuts of how they want to manipulate the Dow Jones industrial average because of this crisis and the fears of inflation. Uh, we've got the FBI that are implementing this massive database. They're actually going to be contracting out with a corporation for a billion dollars in biometrics, which essentially is going to collect data from every human being they can, face scans, eye scans, palm prints, and essentially, can you imagine everywhere you go, there'll be scanners so they know when you went to Walmart or you went to this store, or you went there, they'll know wherever you are at any given time. And it creates this big brother kind of a world and we're close. Then you've got, of course, the problem. The reason we're going in that direction is because of security threats. You've got North Korea who says they'll sell nuclear weapons to terrorists, no problem. You've got Iran who will have nuclear weapons according to experts within three years. You've got Russia building up in the Mediterranean and their alliances with China and OPEC. So much more to create a threat financially for this nation. You've got Islam. You've got the moral confusion in our courts. Just this last week, I understand, the first court of appeals basically said it's okay to expose kindergartners to the gay lifestyle. In fact, even promoting it to a degree. Folks, we are in a really interesting time. Now, in looking at this, I might think that some of you hearing this this morning, thinking, Pastor, you're really depressing me. You know, I came to church. I didn't really look forward to this thing here. What, what are you doing to me? Well, just hold on for a moment. Because ultimately, as you start unfolding your view of the world and yourself and of God through the Bible's viewpoint, your theology, your knowledge of God grows, what a difference it will make. Now let's say you start with just absolutely no knowledge of anything. How would you begin? Where would you begin in talking about theology? You know, some say, well, you can't really talk about God because you get your information of God about from the Bible, so you need to start with the Bible first. And of course, we've done series on how you can trust the Bible to be the Word of God. Others say, well, start with God, you know, because he's the one that wrote the Bible. So which comes first? Where, where do you start in theology? I like to think of it in terms of just C.S. Lewis. He did a masterful job in the book Mere Christianity of just assuming nobody knows anything. Let's start from scratch. Where would you begin with someone? In his opening lines of his book Mere Christianity, I don't think I could improve. I'm going to read a few of these things, and it might even encourage you if you have friends that question these things to really get equipped to answer, give good answers for these things. And so he says this, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it's merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like, How'd you like that if someone did the same thing to you? Or, That's my seat. I was there first. Or, Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Or why should you shove in first? Or give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. Now people say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. What interests me about these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man seldom replies, to heck with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he did really didn't go against the standard, or if it did, there was a special excuse or reason, a particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange and that something turned up which lets him off from keeping his promise. And he goes on, you know, all the parties are trying to appeal to some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior that, whatever you like to call it, he goes, that essentially everyone in the world agrees we may not agree on the exact standard. We all agree that there is a standard. He goes on to describe the sense of right and wrong that's embedded in us. And, of course, the old timers used to call it the law of nature. And more clearly, it's the law of human nature. That worldwide, throughout the world, there is a sense, though we might disagree, like there might be some cultures that think it's okay to marry more than one woman. And other cultures say, no, just one woman. But... There is no culture which would say, 
You can just marry any woman and have any woman that you want. There's rules. There's a sense of, of right and wrong. And he goes on to develop this thing. He says, there are two points I want to make. First, that all human beings everywhere across the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And they can't escape that. And he goes, and the second point is that they do not, in fact, behave that way. I mean, think about that. Those two things are true throughout the world. We all agree there is a way we ought to behave. And we all recognize that we don't behave the way we know we should behave. And that's a standard truth. He goes on to express where did this come from. Now, objections to this coming from God, of course, have people try to make it the herd instinct. This is something you learned as a child. And you, know, you follow these rules because you were embedded in them from a young age. The fact is, he makes a very good point in the book, which I'm not going to go into, of how God actually has to answer this system. Because here you have the choice of this behavior or that behavior. What guides you in the choice? Because there are some instincts you have, which is self-preservation. Another instinct you might have to save someone who's drowning. Which instinct are you going to choose? See, self-preservation, you would think, would be the most powerful. I'm not going to jump in that water to save that person. I might die myself. And yet, you have that instinct to do what you know you should do. I should help him. He's drowning. And then there's something beyond that that you actually step back from and you make a choice between the two instincts. And oftentimes, of course, you would be considered cowardly if you didn't jump in. And all of these thoughts are going through your mind and all of these motivations. But the point is, there is that sense of right, of duty that overcomes the instinct. So we're more than just mere animals. In fact, he makes the point. If we were mere animals, we might just fight over the piece of orange or this or that. But the fact you quarrel is evidence that you're appealing to a standard. Now, I'm making a lot more of this than I wanted to in this introduction, but the point is that there is something deeper in every one of us that reaches the very center of our being. And essentially, by definition, religion itself is belief that there is something beyond us. And theology, more particularly, what is this something? Who is this something? How can I understand this something? Now, if we want to look at the idea of religion, some people believe, well, religion is a set of beliefs. Theology is what you believe. But then others would say, well, it's really kind of what you feel. It's more along your, the lines of your attitudes and your emotions, your heart. And others would say, no, it's a way of life. It's how you behave. Well, in Reality, Christianity covers all those areas. It's not only what you believe, but it also affects your heart, and it also affects the way you live. Truly, when you think about this, everyday theology should touch on this. It should touch on not just what we have in our mind, but should affect our emotions, our experience, and our will, that which we practice. Interesting that Jesus said, the requirement is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and that implies more than just a head knowledge and even a heart understanding and experience but even affects the very way that you choose what you do so here you have theology for the christian a biblical worldview by which we can understand what we're taught about god and ourselves a personal experience with god that you've encountered him and a life-changing practical walk. Now, some might say, well, why theology? Why is it necessary? Shouldn't we just love Jesus? Doesn't theology just cause divisions? So many different denominations divided over small points of theology. And why do we want to fuss with that? And in fact, folks, there is a growing movement in trying to reach this emerging culture which essentially says, well, let's not really debate the point. Let's not talk about whether it's true or not true. Let's just talk about how we feel about it. Let's not debate. Let's just sit down and chat for a moment, shall we? Tell me how you feel about what God says in the Bible. As if the overriding acceptance or not acceptance of truth will be how you feel about it. See, there are three main reasons why theology is extremely important. And one is it's essential to know the truth in order to believe or act upon the truth. And if it's impossible to please God without faith, 
you must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him, then by all means it follows that you have to know what it is you believe and why you believe it. You know, I ask you a question. Is it just enough for me to say to my wife, I love you, you're my wife, without also knowing and holding to a certain set of beliefs concerning marriage, such as being faithful and and honoring and understanding her? Can you imagine if I say, honey, all that matters is that I love you. Yes, there are other women in my life too, but I love you too. You know, I don't think that would fly in a marriage. You know, so often people just reduce it to try to, well, let's not just talk about the particulars of what it means to follow God, because we're going to disagree on this or that point. So let's just, just say we love God and we can be happy together ever after. The point is we need to know what is true about God in order to express trust in him. And Jesus, this was very important, that his disciples understood who he was. In fact, at one point, he took them up to Caesarea Philippi and up in the north part of Israel in the foothills of Mount Hermon where the Jordan River comes right out from the side of a mountain. As he gets them aside now alone, he says, who do men say that I am? Well, some said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and others are saying you're You're Elijah, the prophet. And others say Jeremiah, the prophet. And some say you're one of the prophets. Now, why would people say those things about Jesus? Because they had a particular feeling or experience with him in that. Perhaps those who saw his powerful preaching reminded him of John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, you hypocrites. You know, he came on strong to the Pharisees. Whoa, this must be John the Baptist. Others saw his healing his miracles and thought this has got to be Elijah who else has the miracle working power in the Old Testament than Elijah this has got to be Elijah others saw his compassion for the lost and thought this has got to be Jeremiah the weeping prophet others heard him teach and expound the scriptures and said wow this is one of the prophets they all had a piece of truth but didn't see the whole picture Jesus said to the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter comes out with the great confession of truth. He says, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Upon this rock, who I am, that I am not just a prophet, not just Elijah or any of these people that they make me, but I am the Son of God, the very foundation of belief of a Christian. Some people believe that Jesus was not fully God. There are cults that diminish his glory, say he is a God or he was just a man. Others say that he actually was God in spirit form. He never really had a physical body. The Bible corrects both those errors, very crucial errors. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God in all ways equal with the Father, then that is not a biblical understanding. And if you don't believe that he actually had a physical body, of course, if you don't believe he came in the flesh, like the Gnostics who spiritualized everything, then you're also an heir. And of course, belief in the resurrection is essential. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It's a very simple, brief, picture of how salvation comes essentially verse 9 he says that if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved that is there is the heart and there is the confession the actual practice the open yes i believe for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So resurrection is essential, it says here. You must believe that God raised him from the dead. You know, it's fascinating is, again, not to pick on the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he made statements this last week that belief in the resurrection is not essential for Christianity. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Archbishop, but I would rather hold on to my Bible, if you don't mind. And it's very plain on this. The point is what you believe is going to affect your experience. It's going to certainly affect your experience. You might have a certain feeling about where you stand with God. That might be totally an error. 
And eventually the truth will catch up or your experience will catch up with the truth. It reminds me of a man who falls from a 50-story building. And on his way down, passing each window, he says, hey, I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm fine, no problem. And indeed he is until his experience catches up with the gravity of the situation, pardon the pun. Well, that's the point. You see, you might have a fuzzy feeling. Someone dying might reflect on their life and family, have warm memories, and anticipate seeing their loved ones on the other side. But you see, his experience is going to catch up with the truth. Has he truly done what the Bible gives him in order to inherit eternal life? Has he truly responded to the gospel message and believed on the one way that God has provided for salvation? And folks, if there were other ways, it seems such a waste that Jesus would have had to suffer such pain and die. The fact is there are thousands of alternatives to true Christianity that are vying for your attention. Some sound very plausible. Some are very infectious to the emotion and how you feel and sound very charitable. Well, eventually the whole world will be saved and all kinds of different viewpoints. But what does God say about himself and about salvation? This is what theology is all about. Detecting the real thing is a matter of being familiar with the real thing. Just in the same way that Banks train its employees to detect counterfeits by giving them all kinds of examples of genuine money. They give them old crinkly out money. They give them fresh bills. They give them all kinds of bills to handle, to hold, to observe, to feel. And then they try to slip them a few bogus bills. And it's funny, they immediately detect the bogus bills because they're so familiar with the genuine article. And I know as a young believer, it was a stumbling block for me to try to figure out who's right in all of this. In fact, I was starting to get real familiar with the Bible, started reading it a lot, and got familiar with being around Christians in the campus group. And I, and I think I was only a couple months in the Lord, and I ran into a guy who was asking the professor a question after one of the classes, and I overheard him argue with the professor about God and, and abortion, and I thought, heard him say the name Jesus, and I thought, oh, he's a Christian. So I came up after, hey, I heard you talking, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, really great, what church do you go to? And he goes, I go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, oh, cool, I'd never heard of it, but that's neat. You know the Lord, I know the Lord, and I didn't know anything. But as he began to talk, I couldn't explain it, but there was something that just was unsettling. It was something a little bit wrong. Later, I found out that that was Mormonism. And their Jesus really is not the Jesus of the Bible. Their Jesus is a Jesus that Joseph Smith basically manufactured, that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. And that God was once a man... And he kind of evolved into God, and we will evolve into gods, and we'll all have, be gods of our own little universes one day. And there's all kinds of other things. I won't get into the holy underwear, but the point is, okay, they're not really Christian, though they seem to be Christian. Now, they're very nice people. Mormon people are very family-oriented, wonderful people. But their doctrines, their belief system is not Christian, and it's important to know this is a foundation. You can't trust in a God that you don't know because you're really trusting in something that you think. Satan is very sharp on this. He is always going to throw those alternatives out. He's the father of lies. So we need to know what the Bible has to say. And as we turn to looking at the Bible, and particularly if you're going to be a Christian, you'd think that you'd want to believe what Jesus taught and said. I mean, you can't be a good Marxist unless you follow Karl Marx and his teachings. If you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to follow what Jesus said and believed. And so you go to the Gospels, and you discover immediately when you go to the Gospels that Jesus quoted every book of the Old Testament except for Esther, shows that he put all of those books on the level of the Word of God. So Jesus himself accepted the whole Old Testament as the Word of God. And he anticipated the New Testament. Because he said to his disciples, there are many more things I have to share with you, but you're not ready. But I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he'll lead you and guide you into all truth. And he anticipated the fuller explanation of these things in the New Testament. So you have Jesus essentially expressing you can trust in the Old and the New Testament, and you can gain an understanding of the truth from these things. But let's look at, first of all, 
in our Everyday Theology 101 class here this morning, the nature of God. Now again, this is not just going to be a college course on theology and talk about these things from a very scholastic way. However, I want you to know that maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know what this is going to mean for me. I, I mean, I already know a lot of this stuff. I want you to know the more you get to know about God, who he is and his attributes, the more your faith in him will grow. That I'm hoping that when you leave here today, your view of God will be greatly expanded and go, wow. I'm kind of hoping to evoke that kind of response in you when you leave. Not wow in what he said, but wow in what kind of God I believe in. He is so much far beyond my imagination. Now we could talk about the rudimentary things. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's not like us in that sense. He created us in his image, but he himself is spirit. He's called the eternal, immortal, invisible God who alone is wise. And we're also told to take very careful heed. In the Old Testament, he warned the Israelites, do not make any images of me. Because any image you conjure up in your mind and maybe put on paper or sculpture form will not capture who God is. No one could see his face and live. No one could comprehend him. So he warns against making images. Now, God does use a lot of terms about himself that you could say seem quite human, like you see about the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Or the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the face of the whole earth. Or the face of the Lord is against those. So you've got all of these terms about him that seem very human. And not to pick on the Mormon religion particularly, but they will make a good case in their mind that in all of these terms it proves that God is like a man. And he's got a body. There have been actually some Christian teachers who've said that God is about six foot three and has a span in about nine inches, and he's, you know, they're trying to describe him from these terms that he uses. These are anthropomorphic terms. It doesn't mean that he actually has an arm or eyes in the same way, an eyeball with a socket that reflects the light and goes into his brain. God is spirit. He's much deeper than that. In fact, there was an apologist debating one of the Mormon scholars about this, and the Mormon scholar was saying, he's got arms, he's got feet, he's got eyes, he's just like us. And the apologist said, hmm, so when the passage, it says, he will cover you with his wings, and under his wings you'll seek refuge. Does this make God a big chicken? (laughs) The point is, these are terms to give a context, just like you don't visualize, you conceptualize them. In fact, that's a mistake a lot of people make in reading Revelation. Sometimes they visualize these weird creatures, just like when they look at the cherubim and they see the eyes in the front and the eyes in the back and the eyes all around. And they, If you did an artist's drawing of that, it would look weird. A freaky creature of the Black Lagoon or something. But we know that it's conceptual. The idea of eyes is perception. These are incredibly brilliant beings around the throne of God. They've got insight, foresight, hindsight. Brilliant, powerful. And so we need to understand that. So he uses these terms. So he's spirit. He's also personal. The Bible describes that God is person. It's expressed in his very name. I am that I am, he says to Moses. Uh, There is, of course, other views about God. There's dualism. There's tritheism. There's polytheism. There's pantheism. The fact is, God is personal. Pantheism, of course, was popularized a lot by Star Wars, you know. Uh, The idea that God is in all things and all is God. And they called him the Force, you know, Luke, the Force be with you kind of a thing. And there's a lot of people that believe in this. that They believe that God is just an extension of all the uh, emanations of the universe around us. But personality implies intelligence, reason, self-consciousness, self-determination. How could God, who created person and personality, be any less than his creation? It's unthinkable. Of course, the Bible describes that God at times is angry with the wicked. He loves his children, his hatred towards sin. He grieves over the sins of his people. And the word it is never used for God. It's always he. He creates, he upholds, he supplies, he guides. And I'm not going to go off on 
The fact that God uses masculine terminology for himself because he's so much more than male or female, which he created us male and female in his image. So, you know, he goes much deeper than that. But for the sake of terminology, you don't have to start twisting everything to talk about humankind. And we all understand what mankind represents. It's the creation that God established. God is also manifest in Three persons, the Bible tells us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this troubles some because, of course, we can't figure that out. That's very difficult. But the Jewish people understood very clearly the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. But the Hebrew word they used for one was actually for compound unity. The word yachad that actually implies absolutely one is never used of God. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. And, and there's other places where it comes out, the plural form of God. Yet, we have to be careful. Don't make the mistake of saying there are three gods. There's one God. What is his name and what is his son's name, if you shall know, Proverbs 34 tells us. You know, God. And in the baptism formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were baptized. And the benediction It's the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. We see this picture. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And there's proof throughout all the scriptures on this, yet one God. But let's get down to some practical things for us. Those are very interesting and very important for us to understand just the nature of God. But there are certain characteristics, certain attributes about God that I think will be very, very practical in our study of everyday theology because in a very real way knowing this about God will greatly increase my trust in him and the decisions I make with my life as a result for example God is omniscient which is to say he's all-knowing now for me this is a great comfort because I don't know tomorrow But my God does, and I can take comfort that he knows tomorrow. He's got it in his hands. The Bible says in Isaiah 40 that his understanding is unsearchable. In Psalm 147, verse 5, his understanding is infinite. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, Romans 11, verse 33 says. And has ways past finding out. He counts the stars. He gives them all by name. In fact, in a very personal way, remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. For the very hairs of your head are numbered. Therefore, don't fear you're of more value than many sparrows. You know, the idea there, of course, is that God is so wise and knowledgeable. All the ways of man, the proverb says in chapter 5, verse 21, are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You know, where can you go? The psalmist says, where can I go from his presence? He says, you know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. Before there's a word on my tongue. You know it all together. In history, Acts tells us known to God from eternity are all his works. Acts 15, 18. And of course, we looked at the book of Daniel as God unfolds history, tells us what it's going to happen before the end. And remember, prophecy is his signature on the Bible. How do we know God wrote the Bible? He signed his name to it. By telling you the end from the beginning. And just that one chapter 11 in Daniel, we noted 130 plus prophecies that were literally specifically fulfilled in history. He is all-knowing. He knows all things. Declares the end from the beginning so that you would know he's God. I look at it this way. God knows everything that ever was, everything that ever will be. He knows everything that is. He knows everything that could have been but wasn't, everything that might be but won't be. He knows it instantaneously, effortlessly, without anyone ever telling him anything. He knows. And I often say that. Someone will say, hey, pastor, I'm going through this. I'm facing this situation. I don't really know what to do. And I'm really kind of facing... And oftentimes, I don't know. I don't know the right course or the right 
answer for this, and I'll often say, well, the Lord knows. And often for me, that's enough, because I don't understand many things, but I know he knows. So his omniscience is a great comfort to know this, but not only that, his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, if, if you just look at that alone, should tell you something of the power of God as you study that which he created, for he is bigger than his creation. I'm amazed at the microscopic world that unveils so much of his power and wisdom and then the great stretches of space that even boggle the imagination. The billions of galaxies out there with multi-billions of stars. But even when you start looking closely at one star in particular, you see the vast amount of energy. Our star is just a medium-sized star. In fact, if you took the Earth revolving around our sun, and we're 93 million miles away from our sun, you could take the Earth revolving around our sun and put it inside Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion and still have 100 million miles to spare. That's how big that one star is in the constellation Orion. If you go out and see it on a nice night where you can see the little three stars as the belt, the top one is Betelgeuse. It's the reddish star. Rigel is the bluish star on the bottom, which... Rigel, of course, is moving toward us, and Betelgeuse is moving away from us at great next speed, and that's why they vary in color. It's fascinating stuff, but just to understand how fast these systems are, God, the Bible says, stretched them forth with his hand. Now, the agnostic generally stumbles over this point. The very evidence that we would use as Christians to show how amazing God is, they use to deny God, because in their mind, wait a minute. This universe is so big, what kind of a person would have the power to make this? It couldn't have happened. One person, this God, could have made all these things. And by the very fact of these things, it expands our mind as Christians how great God is. You see, you've got to make a choice one way or another. If you think about it as a Christian, you realize, well, wait a second. This should expand my mind as the power of God. But as an agnostic, you're going to say, oh, no one could have had that much power. No one could have that much power. No one could do that. But you've got to choose one thing or another. Either you believe in eternal matter or an eternal God. We talk about this. We have to also think in terms of the idea of his being eternal and unchangeable. These are other attributes that when you think about the eternalness and the unchangeableness of God, that he never changes I am the Lord, I do not change. He is. I know when I was in elementary school, I had a real hard time with the idea because, you know, we're so used to everything having a beginning. Well, where did God come from, we ask? Well, he always was. Well, that didn't satisfy me. I stumbled over that. What do you mean he always was? Everything has to have a beginning. Well, again, you've got the choice. Which is first? You see, a big nothing but then where did something come from? Even the evolutionist doesn't really have the answer. Because they're going to go back to something, what? You know, they, they talk about the Big Bang and everything started from a little tiny point and expanding out. But where did that something come from? And where did the design and the incredible complexity come from? If you have nothing, you have nothing. But if you have something, then where did that something come from? Because it's still very ordered and structured. Even rock, the molecules, and everything's so ordered. And everything is so complex. Point is that God is all-powerful. Even Satan needs permission from God to touch Job or to tempt Peter. No one can restrain his hand. And then, of course, there's God's omnipresence. He's not only omniscient, knows all things. Omnipotent is all-powerful, but also he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. I am a God Near at hand, he says. I'm not a God afar off. That's one of the most fascinating things, as big as this universe is. He is intimately acquainted with each of our ways, and he's here with us. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? If I fled from your presence, where could I go? If I go down into hell and make my bed there, you're there. If I go into the highest stretches of heaven, you're there. God is everywhere. In fact, it might interest you to know that's what's going to make hell hell for some the very presence of God because in Revelation you see have the rocks and the mountains fall on us they'll cry to hide themselves from the wrath of the lamb the very burning presence of God's 
righteousness will be a torment to them forever because they receive not the love of the truth to deal with their sin. So God's omnipresence, he's everywhere. He's eternal, he's unchangeable as we note it. And by the way, him being unchangeable has been doubted by some because it appears even in the Bible that God changes his mind, right? I mean, didn't he relent and not destroy Nineveh when they repented? It sounds like the terminology that God changes his mind, but in reality, the Bible says, I change not, the Lord says. He always is. And you know, that's a nice thing to know. You've had friends that change, and you don't like what they changed into. You've made their friend, now you're vulnerable, you love them, and now they've changed. And now you're either going to be dragged into that world they've changed or, or lose that friend. And it's a very painful thing when people change. The Bible says don't associate with those given to change. You know, I say one thing and do another, they're, they're unchangeable as the wind. You want to know when someone gives their word, they're going to keep their word. They're not going to change. You want to have that security. God should give that to you. He doesn't change, but... When it appears he changes, just know this. Oftentimes that's in relation to the choices you make. When I go down to the beach in the summer and ride my bike, I'll note which way the wind is blowing. Because I like to start out my journey against the wind, because then when I turn around at the end when I'm tired, it's a nice, easy, you know, ride back. So I'm fighting the wind in the beginning. And then I turn around and, boy, this is nice. Now, it would appear from that perspective the wind changed. But, of course, I know better. I know that I changed. I turned my bike around. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. He does not change. What changes? How come sometimes he, his hand is heavy upon you? It feels like he's harsh and demanding. And other times, man, you just sense his love and his grace and his purpose. And, well, I submit to you that it's not that God changed. He's always been going in that direction, you've changed. And I think it's a great important point to think about our ship. We, maybe we need to trim our sails and turn in the other direction. Stop fighting and resisting him because he is God. He is unchanging and eternal. More importantly than all of these things, I think, is his sovereignty. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. The whole passage, of course, is very rich with this picture of the sovereignty of God. It's a great chapter to meditate upon and to ponder how vast, how powerful God is. But just in this small little section, verse 15, we'll start. He says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. You know, from God's perspective, all the powers that be in the world... They control the world and the nations. They're, they don't really even weigh as dust on the scale. They're of no account. They're like a drop in the bucket. They don't mean anything. There's nothing. There's no weight. He lifts up the aisles as a very little thing, and Lebanon isn't sufficient to burn. Now, Lebanon was known with all the huge cedar trees, and basically that wouldn't even be a nice campfire for the Lord. Nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They're counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. You know, we read about some pretty frightening possibilities in looking at some of the news items in our world today. And if you stop there, you'd be kind of depressed. Like, oh, what's, what about the future for our world? What about my children and my children's children? Where are we going? And what's going to happen? And how bad things are going to get? It would be quite disconcerting if it were not for the fact that God says, the nations are nothing. All of these powers mean nothing. In comparison to who he is, he sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. I'd hope he'd make a few judges in our nation useless. And I'm sure he will in due time. They're going to stand before the judge and have to give an account for all of their judgments. He brings to princes to nothing. Now he says, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Just imagine before eternity, all of the nations that have come and gone, all of the people with power and pomp and you know the, the riches and royalty of the life that they have, it's all as dust on the scale, folks. This should put our lives in perspective. 
one of my favorite verses, Psalm 115.3. It's a very short little verse, and I love it. It says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Did you know that about God? He does whatever he pleases. Now, in a very real sense, the most freeing thing in the world could be for every one of us if we could honestly say, once we've come to the Lord and experienced his life, that we do whatever we please. And I'll tell you why. One thing you'll find is that when you take the nature of God upon you and you become more like him, that what pleases you the most is honoring him. And you want that. Would to God I always did that which pleased me now because sometimes I do things that don't please me. And that's greatly disconcerting for me. And I cry like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I don't want those temptations. I don't want that bad attitude when I'm in a bad mood. I don't want that because that's not like him. Would to God I could always do that which pleases me the most. Well, God does. Perfectly consistent with his nature. Now, that might scare some. God does whatever he pleases. Does that mean he's capricious? No. Because his nature, we will look at the moral attributes next time. He is love. He is good. Isn't it nice to know the one that controls every molecule in the world is good? He is good. His purposes are good. But he does whatever in heaven and earth that he wants. And this is an important thing, and this is what troubles us. The Bible gives the illustration in Jeremiah and in Romans about he's the potter, we're the clay. Who are we to say to the potter, hey, I really don't like what you did here in my life. Who are we to challenge his sovereignty? Because he is, his mind is so much, he knows everything. And the, the challenge for us as people is to learn how to be more aware of his power, his love, his grace, his sovereignty, and yield ourselves to it, to turn our ship in his direction. That's the point. Because right now there are a great many in rebellion. Well, notwithstanding all this, Pastor, I'm going to do my own thing. I have my own plans. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my soul. And of course, God has given you something that is unique. You have that choice. But as long as you resist him, eventually you're going to realize that all that you do and all that the whole world does and all of its evil is going to nonetheless just count as dust on the scales. It'll be blown away. But the real thing that's left, the real substance, are those who put their trust in him. This is the God of the Bible. Now, some might argue and say, well, why? That's not fair. That God would even, according to the scriptures, predestine those for eternal life. You know, that he chooses some from the foundation of the world. That bothers some. It shouldn't. You say, well, what if he hasn't chosen me? Well, I'll say, well, why don't you choose him? Then you'll know he chose you. Well, I don't want to choose him. Well, then maybe he didn't choose you then. Well, that's not fair if he didn't choose me. Well, then choose him and you'll settle the problem. <laughs> One thing is certain, though we have a context in which we have been given freedom of choice. However, God is still sovereign ultimately. And consider this, that even in hell, those that will forever regret the decision of rebellion against God and we've tormented day and night, we can't fathom how that would please God. But if you think about God in his ultimate plan, the plan to see some that will choose him and have a relationship with him as he elevates you to be a joint heir with his own son, Jesus, which goes far beyond what I could ever even imagine, the creator of the universe elevating his creation so much that that will override any of the thought, because people say, I just can't understand hell. That doesn't make sense. God that is good and loving, how could he allow that? Well, it's because you can't understand his ultimate plan. You say, well, if God knew all these people were going to go to hell and all this suffering in the world, why would he even create? Why would he even start? You see, again, we don't see how he compares the value of those who will be with him obviously outweighs the suffering. But even those suffering and forever will acknowledge their sin this is a piece of meat that some of you might choke on. And I know maybe you've gotten a lot of milk here and it's been wonderful, but this is something to really consider. The sovereignty of God is so much deeper than we can fathom. Who are we to even argue? We need to trust, and that's the challenge for us. The big question is we strive with our maker. 
We're like Joshua when he's ready to go against Jericho and he goes out the night before and he sees this man with a sword drawn. And he says to him in Joshua 1, he says, are you for us or against us? And the man says, no. Huh? No. Are you for us or against us? No, doesn't answer. He says, no, but as captain of the Lord's host, I have come. And Joshua realizes that this is his Lord, his master, that's manifesting himself in this human form. And he falls on his face. You see, God's answer, no, is perfectly appropriate. We are forever trying to box God in with our, our own plan and strategy. And there's a whole segment of Christianity that can, if you learn the formula right here, you can get God to work for you. Are you for us or against us, God? The Lord says, no. Are you for me? Will you follow me? And those that will repent, turn toward their ship, toward him, believe in the gospel, his provision for eternal life, will have the most amazing adventure. In this life, lots of trials, challenges, pains, suffering. They hate the fact that you still are tempted to sin and all kinds of other issues. But this is all the testing ground for one day standing for all eternity, as God sees his church throughout all time and space. And he's going to adorn his bride, and he's going to come back for that bride one day. And it's going to be a glorious time. This is the God of the Bible. Some may be stumbled over it, but this is who he is. Now, some would like to not talk about these plain teachings of the Scripture because they might bother some, they might challenge someone's thought uh, and just have a soft, cozy chat about how you feel about these things. The point is, we've got to be confronted with truth, else we would not be prepared to meet the majesty on high because of who he is. But ultimately, as we look at all these issues, especially as we look at his moral attributes next time, which will be greatly encouraging, just know this. Sovereignty of God is, is coupled with his goodness, his mercy, his love, and that you can trust him. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Not one thing escapes his notice. You can leave here today knowing whatever betides you, whatever comes your way, God is going to use for good in your life as you love him and as you put him first. If you're not submitted to him, it's another story. If you're still striving with your maker, he's patient. He might let you learn the extent of your own strength. Okay, you want to go that way? You know, have fun. Let me know. When it messes up, I'll be right there to pick up the pieces. You have to learn the hard way. Go for it. God is so patient. But at the end of the day, he is sovereign. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Lloyd Pulley. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Lloyd's ministry by visiting www.ccob.org.